Well, hello, everybody. It is great to see you. Good to be together. Glad for the opportunity to open up God's Word with one another. It's a pleasure for me to go ahead and add a welcome to those you've received, whether you're here live in the room, whether you're taking this in online today, and welcome to all of you. Perhaps you're on our Moon campus. Great to welcome you or in our classic venue. It's good to have all those different places and opportunities for people to gather together. As we get started today, I've got a question for you, and that is, have you been on any memorable journeys lately? Anything memorable that sort of stands out to you? Carolyn and I were planning one, this is a little while ago, some, some months ago, and, and our kids thought, hey, that sounds like fun, so they decided that they were going to join us. And then Carolyn's mom heard, and she thought it sounded like fun, and she decided to join us also. And that was all great, the only little challenge was that that meant that there were six of us. And I don't know about you, but it's kind of hard to find a vehicle that really seats and takes six people around. We were renting a vehicle, so that made it extra difficult. And, and so I knew that with six people, some of the luggage was going to have to ride on top of the car. Either that or my mother-in-law. <laughs> so we strapped her down. and No, we, we certainly didn't. But, but we did have some some golf clubs that were also making the trip, and sometimes they're hard to, to squeeze in the back. They're pretty big and, and bulky, and so we decided that that was the place, or those were the things that were going to go and sit up on top of the car. Uh, but I knew that I was going to have to have something that was kind of soft and spongy to wrap all around it, because I didn't want to damage the clubs, and I didn't want to damage the car. Remember, it's a rental, and so I tried to come up with what I could. We weren't at home. We were away, and so I just thought, well, what can I find that's cheap and that would wrap it up really well? And what I came up with was a remnant of some carpet pad that I just would go to the store and I'd buy, and I did. And I brought it back, and I, and I wrapped up the clubs and put them up on top of the car, and I strapped it all down, and it was good to go. Now, my family didn't know that this was my plan. And so when they saw the car, with the car, you know what the carpet pad looks like? It's all multicolored and looks, yeah. So uh, they didn't exactly refuse to get in the car, but, uh, but they were glad for sunglasses and tinted windows. I do know that. And uh, so we, we started out on this, this journey with it all up. And I do have to admit that looking at what it looked like up on top of the car, it uh, did look like we were transporting a couple of dead bodies up there. And yes, we definitely looked like something out of the Beverly Hillbillies. But we did make it. We made it to our journey. Everything was fine. The roof was fine. The clubs were fine. And I felt pretty good about myself and having come up with this solution. And so we pulled into the hotel. They made me pull in the back of the hotel, but we got there and the journey was, was all a success, even though there were a few challenges that we encountered along the way. Now, a journey is what we're thinking about today, and we're going to be talking specifically about another journey that also had some challenges that went along with it. And the specific journey we're talking about today is actually a journey to Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people have made trips, journeys to Jerusalem. Some of you have traveled and journeyed to Jerusalem yourself. I have done that as well. I've had that blessing, that opportunity to do so. And in fact, I've told you about it many times. When we got back from Israel, I couldn't stop talking about it until you were pretty much fed up with it. Well, that was already seven years ago. 
And so it's time to go back and have more stories to share with you some more. But uh, anyway, that time has gone by pretty fast. But I've had my opportunity to go there, and a lot of people have, some in more recent days, but some of old. Israel of old made a point. The Jews of old were constantly traveling to, journeying to, Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was the centerpiece of the nation. That's where the temple was. It was the religious center as well. It's where the, the temple was. It is it's certainly the place that they believed that God dwelled and where they could go and they could find and they could worship God and learn more about Him. So they were constantly on the move and going there to Jerusalem, and understandably so, to be sure. Now, there have been a lot of trips to Jerusalem, and when they would make their trips, believing that this is where God could be found, not only did they go to see the temple or to go to be in that place, but they went to discover God. It was a journey to God for them, and that's what we're going to be thinking about today. That's what we're calling this today, is the journey to God. And to assist us along the way, we're going to take a look at this psalm that is in front of us today as we continue on in our studies through the psalms. Now, of course, the journey to God is something that occupies our minds also. Not just the psalmist's mind, it occupies our minds, or it should occupy our minds. I'm sure that it does because you're here, and to some degree or another, maybe it's a lot for you that it does, maybe it's just a little bit that your mind is occupied on an ongoing basis with thoughts about God. Maybe when you think about your journey to God. Maybe it's something that brings you, you joy and anticipation, or maybe when you think about it, it brings you more fear and apprehension. When you think about where am I headed and what are the things that are yet to come. For some of you, the journey to God actually brings you tremendous guilt feelings because you don't believe that you're as far along the journey to God as what you should be. But today isn't about guilt. Today is about opportunity. Because we're all at a place along the spectrum that you would use to describe journeys to God and how close we are in getting to God. Now, you're at some place along that journey. We're all at different places along that journey. But instead of beating you up that you're not further down that journey, because all of us should be further ahead than what we are, we're simply going to consider today, where's our starting point? And knowing where our starting point is, consider how do we take the next step? How do we take the next step in our journey? And that's what my goal is for today, is that we would contemplate and commit ourselves toward taking the next step. Not where are we and shame on you for not being further, none of that. How do we take the next step in our journey to God? And the psalm that we're going to be looking at today, I believe, is helpful to move us along that path or understand a little something about journeying to God. And I'd invite you to go ahead and open up to it. It's Psalm 84 that we're going to be looking at together today. Psalm 84. If you've been around church any period of time, there are going to be things in this psalm that are going to jump out to you. You're going to say, I've heard that before. And that'll be helpful on our way. But it's here in Psalm 84. Again, please turn there. It's always helpful to bring your Bible. We always walk through a text of Scripture. And uh, so here there are these verses that you can look at as we go. And it's here that we're going to see some of the ups and downs that come on a pursuit of God. And as we can see what's happening here, there are things that we can take and glean for our own 
lives. So let's jump into this. There are a few different legs of this journey that we're going to see today. And the first is what I'm going to call feeling the distance. Because there are times when we feel the distance, when we desire to be somewhere that we're not. And we see that here in this psalm. Now, as we've seen in other psalms along the way, this psalm has a superscription. Not all of them do. This one does. It's the words that precede the verses. And in this case, it says that this is for the director of music. That's no surprise. This is a psalm. It's Israel's songbook. It's according to Giddith. That is most likely an instrument that was used to accompany or was supposed to be used to accompany this psalm. And the author here, we're told, are the sons of Korah. They were in the Levitical line, which means that they had responsibilities in the temple. They were probably singers and musicians, and they had some other responsibilities that we'll see as we get further on in the psalm. Now, as this psalm gets started, you can see that our author, our authors, the sons of of Korah here, had a real longing to pay a visit to a special place, a place that they so much wanted to be. You've got places like that, right? Places that you just think, oh man, I'd love to go there. I'd love to go back there. That's something that I would long to do. Maybe for you, it would be like the beach. That's a place you long to go. Many of you have been to the beach this summer. For some of you, it's like, no, the place I'd long to go is Brewster's. That's where I'd long to go, right? Well, for me, it's Wampum. Absolutely. And somebody just last week actually brought up to me what's going on in Wampum. They said there's even more reason to desire to go there now. Not only do they have their flashing light, they also now have, apparently, a Dollar General. And so, I mean, why not go, right? Maybe we should take a field trip later on and head over to Wampum. All right, so our authors here, they also want to go somewhere. It's not Dollar General, I promise you. I promise you that. But as they share where it is, what you get is this clear glimpse of what's going on in their heart. There's something amazing here that they long for. Beginning in verse 1, then, let's get, take a look at this. Psalm 84, beginning in verse 1. Here's what the psalmist says it says, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty! My soul yearns even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Now, as we've already made mention of, the dwelling place of the Lord, which the author is referring to here, is the temple in Jerusalem. Now, let's just rewind and and set up the the scene here just a little bit. The temple that he's referring to is Solomon's temple. David longed to build the temple, but it wasn't in God's plan for him. Solomon is the one who came along and did it, and he did it according to some very specific regulations that God had given him. It was established there were courtyards there, and depending on who you were, you had access closer and closer in to what was at the center place, which was the Holy of Holies. This is a place where it was believed that God's Spirit dwelled, where He dwelled. And you couldn't go in there. There's only one person who could go in there, and only once a year, and that was the high priest, and it was only on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And so that was the restriction set up. But this is where he's longing to go, is to get close to that place. The Holy of Holies, the temple there in Jerusalem, was the holiest site in all of Judaism at that time. In fact, it still is today. Unfortunately, Solomon's temple was destroyed. The Babylonians swept in in 586 B.C., and they destroyed the temple, and they deported the Jews out of Jerusalem, out of their homeland, out of the place that they loved to be, off to Babylon. Now, eventually, they were able to come back to the city, and in 516, under Zerubbabel, the city and the temple is rebuilt again. 
which is a beautiful thing. They love that fact. And, and later on, 444 B.C., the walls of Jerusalem, of that ancient city, were restored and rebuilt again. We, send, we tend to know more about the walls that were rebuilt than the rebuilding of the temple itself because we know that the walls were rebuilt by... Thank you. By, by Nehemiah. I know that you knew it. You were just afraid to say it. All right? Nehemiah, absolutely. Well, the temple would later be desecrated, and the Jews would come along, and they'd try to restore it and rebuild it as much as they could. But it wasn't until Herod the Great came along. Hundreds of years later, after the intertestamental period, about 20 B.C., Herod the Great, he goes to this uh, big rebuilding, remodeling of the, of the whole temple, temple area, the Temple Mount, that you can still go and see there in Jerusalem. He'd restored. It took a long, long time to do so. It actually wasn't completed until 66 AD. And as things would happen, it was, it was just a few years later, AD 70, that the Romans swept in and they destroyed the temple as well. There's this whole series of the temple is built, then it's destroyed, and then it's rebuilt, and it's destroyed, and it's, and it's rebuilt, and so on. Well, in the 7th and 8th century, Islam comes on the scene, and they're able to overtake what is going on there on the Temple Mount. And they start to build shrines, and they start to build mosques. And the most notable of all of those is called the Dome of the Rock. And you can see it right here. If you've seen any picture of Jerusalem, the old city, you certainly have seen this gold dome that is there on the top of the Temple Mount. This is, if you, if you were able to go inside there, this is one of my pictures for what, from when we were there. We could walk around on top. We weren't supposed to be able to get up onto the Temple Mount, but we were able to go, just a few of us. And you can walk around. We couldn't go inside. Only Muslims are allowed to go inside of this shrine or inside of the mosque that is also up there on the Temple Mount. Still today, though, the Jews consider the Temple Mount to be their most holy of sites, but it's under Islamic control now, and so they're not able to go. This is the place where they, actually where the Jews believe that uh, Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, that this is the top of Mount Moriah. If you could go inside here, you would see that there's a big stone, which is believed to be the very top of that mountain. Well, the Jews aren't able to go there any longer. The closest they can get is the western wall of the ancient city, and you can see it here. This is the western wall right here, and the Jews are here. You can see the, the Dome of the Rock up there on top of the Temple Mount, but uh, this is the wall of the Temple Mount, and they can't go any closer. And today, every day you go there, you'll be able to see Jews there at the Western Wall. You used to call it the Wailing Wall, but they prefer to call it the Western Wall, and they're, and they're saying prayers. They're slipping little pieces of paper with prayers inside the cracks in the walls. They're performing different religious ceremonies and different religious rites that are going on there. So that's what's going on today. That's kind of a little bit of the history, how it flowed out. But for our authors here, they were allowed to go to the temple. It was open for them to go, but for some reason they couldn't. We're not told exactly why they're not able to travel into Jerusalem for one of these feasts or festivals that's going on, but for some reason they can't, and they're feeling that very keenly. They're feeling the emptiness that comes along with them, that, they're, that, that comes along with that. They're feeling very much left out. You can see that. If you go on in verse 3, here's what they write. Say, even the sparrow has found a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Here the psalmist is talking about the birds. 
It's talking about how they have freedom, how they have access to wherever they want to go. And it's true. They do. A bird can pretty much go wherever a bird wants to go. And uh, I've seen that recently, actually, at my own house. I was sitting in the house the other day. It was, I don't know, three, four, five, six weeks ago. I'm not sure when. But uh, recently, and I hear the scratching on the door, the front door. And it sounded just like a squirrel was there scratching on my door. Or else a cat that one of you had dropped off for me or something. I wasn't sure what it was. But on further examination, I discovered it wasn't either of those things. It was actually a bird a bird that was sitting in the wreath that Carolyn had put on the front door. And it wasn't just sitting there, it was building a nest in the wreath that was there on the front door. And I thought, well, this is a great conversation piece for anybody who stops by. But that idea got vetoed, and so I had to clean out what was already established of this nest, which I did, and I took it and tried to put it somewhere else, hoping the bird would go over there. But every few days, I'd keep hearing the bird back in the wreath, it kept, trying, it kept bringing twigs, and every time there was a few more twigs, and it was getting a little bit less enthusiastic than it was at the start, but it was still doing that. A bird had the freedom to do that because it could go anywhere and do whatever it wanted to do and build a nest, or at least start a nest, wherever it wanted to do so. And the psalmist knew that, and he's bringing it up here in this passage. Now, I used to read this, about the sparrow and about the, the swallow having its nest and all of those sorts of things. I used to read that as a figure of speech where the sparrow and swallow were able to, to settle in and rest in the presence of God and that we should do the same thing too. And that sounds awesome, but that's really not what this is saying. This is much more in the moment than, than that. See, the psalmist is describing something that he's actually seen in the temple. The bird has access to places that he can't go. The bird, he's probably seen this in the past, has flown into some places and has started to build nests and has established a nest in places that are right close to the altar of God in the temple. And the psalmist is jealous. He's like, oh, if only... I could have the experience of the sparrow. If only I could be that close. He longs to draw in, but he's feeling the distance that exists from where he is to where he so much longs and desires to be, even faints for his desire to be there. Are you feeling distance? Do you ever feel distance from, from desiring to be so close to God, but something is just holding you back? Something is keeping you from joining in. I love the attitude, the spirit, the heart of the psalmist here. And how it really ought to be something that is indicative of what our lives is. Not quite the same way because we're not trying to get to that temple. We should be desiring to get to God. That's ultimately his desire here. But it's feel, he's feeling it interrupted. He's feeling the distance. But he's not about to give up. He feels the distance, but he's not going to throw in the towel just yet. And as the passage continues, we see him finding a way. That's the second thing. Feeling the distance, yes, but finding a way. Now, we just saw that the psalmist wasn't able to make this trip himself, but now he is describing the trip to Jerusalem. And so what's that about? That could be very easily kind of confusing. So what's going on here Exactly. Well, there are a couple of things that could be happening. It could be that he's just describing the journey of a different pilgrim, somebody else who's making the trip. But it's probably not that, based on the way that he's writing this. It's more likely that what he's describing is what he's imagining that the journey would be 
to take it. Or, maybe even more likely than that, he's reflecting on a previous journey that he's taken. He's reflecting on a previous trip that he's taken there, and he's describing what that is like. Now, we all do that, right? We all go down memory lanes from time to time, reflecting and remembering certain things that are meaningful to us. How many times have you heard somebody say, I'll never forget the time when we, right? Or remember the time when dad put the carpet pad up on the car. You know, it's not always good memories, but the psalmist's memory here is good. He's very excited about the whole thing. He writes in verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage whose hearts are set on getting to God, of worshiping God as close to the altar as possible. Verse 6, as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Zion here is just another name for Jerusalem. That's where this journey is headed, and, and he's thinking through, or he's picturing in his mind, the trip on the way. Well, you've got to go through the Valley of Baca, and we don't know a whole lot about this valley. There's very little, there's really nothing said in the Scriptures about it. What we can surmise from the name itself is that it's an arid place, it's a dry place, it's a place that would be sort of characterized by drought, place of need, a place of of want. And the psalmist is picturing this place of trouble and challenge where there's no water, knowing where there's no water, there can be no life, certainly nothing that thrives, probably nothing that even survives. And it's in that context, in that understanding, look at the way that he describes it here in verse 6. He says this place is a place of springs. What? It's a dry place. It's an arid place. It's a drought-filled place. He says, no, 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 it's a place of springs. What's that about? Well, the faith and the hope and the strength of, of this one on his journey to God transforms the place of need to a place of supply. A place that was without to a place that now has and can provide for him and what his needs happen to be. That's one way it's described. He goes on and describes it additionally. First of all, he says the pilgrim makes it a place of springs, but he knows that the ultimate source of that is the Lord. And so he goes on then to also say, also describe it as a place where the autumn rains also cover it with pools. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. That's the blessing of the Lord that just falls to create an abundant supply around this person who is on this journey into need. These are important realities. These are things that we need to grasp onto, that we need to come to understand ourselves as well. Because all of us are going to experience our own valley of Baca, our own difficult, dry seasons and difficult times. And sometimes we walk through those, and all of us face them, the challenges, the pains, the hurts that come along. And sometimes we walk along, and it's like, well, there's just nothing here surrounding me. I've got no hope. I've really got nothing to sustain me and to provide for me in the midst of my need. And what the psalmist here is saying is, yes, you do. That the one who is journeying to God is one who is finding him complete. He is finding the strength of the Lord. He's finding instead of being in this arid place and being stuck, in the drought, he's saying, we're filled to overflowing. 
that as we run to God, it's as though God opens up the spigot and all of it flows out. There's no reason that we need to find ourselves in a difficult place and find ourselves apart from the provision that we need. None at all. We need not make excuses that say, well, sometimes that's just the way that it is. Sometimes it's just a, a hard journey and there's, there's nothing to provide and hopefully God will, sh- well, God is already showing up. He's already opening up the spigot and it's pouring out and we can bathe underneath the provision of God with whatever it is that we're, we're struggling our way through. Don't think that you need to be stuck or that you need to just grin and bear it, that you just need to endure. You can run to God and you can find Him on your journey to God you can find his provision to be complete. It's a beautiful thing. And it leaves us with one more experience for the psalmist, for the pilgrim, for the one on the journey to God. We've seen already that he's feeling the distance in finding a way, and here lastly then, he's focusing the heart. As if the psalmist's heart wasn't focused on the Lord enough already, goes on tells us, well, he just turns to God in prayer. Look at verse 8. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on your, our shield, our God. Look with favor on your anointed one. In praying for the anointed one, he's praying for the royal line of David. Because it was through the royal line of David that Jesus ultimately would come, and he knows that it's important that that would be sustained. In fact, it's even more likely that he's just outright referring to Jesus, because he too is referred to as the anointed one. It's basically what the, the title Christ means, or the title Messiah, what it means. Verse 10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Remember that the sons of Korah were musicians, they were singers. Remember we said they also had some other responsibilities there in the temple courts. And one of those that's described here for us is that it was their responsibility for watching over the entry to the sanctuary. It wasn't the most glamorous job, it wasn't the most prestigious job, but what they're saying is we love it because it brings us close every day. Close to the place of the Lord. Close to the one we adore. Close to the one that we just desire to be near. And he says, whatever is required of us to do that, we're willing to do that in order to draw near. Saying it's infinitely better than having status, having power, having position in some place or environment that is apart from God or certainly among the wicked, he says. And that's a test that we should put ourselves to as well. Where is it you're making your investment? What is it that you're running after? It's so easy to get sucked into the world standard of of going after the status and power and position, and everybody's doing it. It's like, well, I want that too, because of what it seems that it provides for us. And in the ultimate end, it doesn't provide for us what we think. And, and the psalmist seems to know that. And he's like, well, if I were at your church, I'd rather have some ministry in some difficult area, in a hard spot, or, or in some dirty job, or in something where I work in the shadows, 
and be able to be close and, and providing for the people of God and, and doing something that is providing for God's purposes to be accomplished than simply having my own name lifted up and, and my own status exalted. He says that's not where it's found. That's where ultimately you're going to be left empty instead of, of full. His priority here is focusing the heart. Verse 11 for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. There's some who have criticized the psalmist here because he's longing for a place. And you see that in the beginning of this passage, as if that's where God is Found. And it's true that he loves the place where God's found, but it doesn't stop there. We saw that right at the beginning of this whole text. Back in verse 2, if you look at it again, it says this, My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. Yes, the courts of the Lord. But, he goes on, My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That's who he's pursuing. It's not just a place. It's God himself that he's after. Similarly today, we don't need to be in a particular place. We don't need to be in this place to worship God. We can do that in any of a number of other places as well. We've recently gathered at Darlington Lake for our special baptism service, and there was no doubt at all but that the presence of the Lord was there as we met together. In the history of this church, we've met for worship in living rooms, in grange halls, in fire halls. We've met in school auditoriums. We've met in hotel ballrooms. We've met in retreat centers. We even met at the Golden Dome for a service once. And the Lord was present in all of those places. There was no doubt about it. Yet at the same time, there is something special about this place. It's a place that we believe that the Lord has provided for us. It's a place that we can gather together with our fellow believers, brothers and sisters in, in Jesus Christ, and that's always special. There are so many incredible things that have been done for Christ, decisions that have been made for Jesus inside these walls, and that's something special that we should, should never discount. But it doesn't mean that this is the only place that we can find God. Yet sometimes people do like to make it about a place when it comes to worship. I visited a lot of churches and cathedrals in, in the U.S. and in some places around the world, and a lot of times it, it's pretty much made to be about the place. Carolyn and I saw that in pretty sharp relief not all that long ago, but on an occasion when we were in Rome. There's no shortage of impressive religious buildings in Rome. They are all over the place, and you can walk into them, and they're, they're magnificent architecturally. They're spectacular. They're ornate, and they're beautiful, and all the rest. But for all the different ones that I've been in, I don't ever remember a time when what was celebrated was a move of God in that place. It was always about the place. It was always about the architecture, always about 
who built it and who's buried there and, and those sorts of things. They were big places, but they felt kind of empty. Then right before we headed off to the airport on a Sunday morning, we stopped into a church, a little church. It wasn't on any map, and, and it wasn't big. It was kind of hard to find. It wasn't very ornate at all. In fact, here's a picture of it right here. It was actually quite plain. I would later discover that this was actually former, formerly the stables of a house that these people were meeting in. The Spirit of God was most definitely there. The worship was sweet, and the word was clear that day. It was a very bright light for Christ in what can be a rather spiritually apathetic city in many regards, and it was refreshing to see. Now, place is important. There's no doubt about that. It was true in Jerusalem. It was true in the small Roman church. It's true in Moon. It's true in Chippewa. But a room without a reason means nothing. A room without a reason means nothing. It's about who's worshipped here that brings this place to life. And it's about who's worshipped here that brings us to life. So, how's your journey to God going? Is it about externals? Is it about place? Is it about ritual? Is it about tradition? Or is it about relationship with God? Because he Externals can appease the conscience for now, but it's only a relationship that saves a soul forever. So it's important that we would pause, that we would reflect, that we'd be instructed by the psalmist and his desire to get to God and his longing to be there, and ask ourselves, is that how I feel in my own pursuit of God? In my journey to God, am I longing to be present? Do I faint for the chance to be with God, with God's people, pursuing Him, learning of Him, drawing deeper in relationship with who He is and what He desires for me? Or do I take it much more casually than that? Could it be that if I'm not a part of the people of God for a week or two or a month or two that I don't really feel that I've missed all that much? I don't feel like I've really been left out and oftentimes when we're not pursuing it together, we're not pursuing it on our own with any intensity either. So it's not just about, yeah, he's trying to tell me I have to be here more. No, we need to be in Christ more. So how would you describe where you are? I pray that we would have this urgency, this desire, this fire that is built under us that we cannot help but pursue, that we read it, that we would be jealous of others who have the opportunity to get close to God. But there's no reason to be jealous because that opportunity is ours as well. So wherever it is that you'd be on the spectrum, on the move to God, on the journey to God, 
no guilt about where you are, but he committed to taking the next step and being all in about taking your journey closer to Christ day in and day out. I pray that that would be the case. In fact, I long to pray for you now and invite you to pray yourself, committing yourself toward that journey as we conclude. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Heavenly Father, I pray for those who are in Christ. We know we have relationship with Jesus. We're walking with you. We don't have any real doubt about that. But the urgency is lacking. Our journey to you has no fire lit under it. We're moseying toward you. We're not running to you. We're not passionately pursuing you. If we get there, that's great. If we don't, that's okay too. I mean, I'd long to, but Lord, if that's our our position, our spirit today, I just pray for your conviction that it would rest on us, that we would have the desire to be close to you, to walk in fellowship with you, to long for, to yearn for, as the psalmist does, walking in harmony and fellowship with who you are. Lord, whatever that requires of us, I pray that in this moment we would make that commitment. Friends, I pray also today for those of you who might be in a place where you would say, you know what, I'm not sure I'm actually on the journey to God. I've got an interest, but I've never really taken the step of saying, Lord, I want to know you more. I want to walk in fellowship with you. Or maybe you're here and it's like, I want to, but I haven't. And you need to take that step. So for you, you can commit yourself to God in that regard. You can say, I'm getting on the journey now by praying something like this. Lord, I want to follow after you. I don't understand it all, but I know that this is the direction that I need to move. And so today I confess my sin and I ask you for your forgiveness and I ask you to put me on that path and draw me in. I'm putting my faith, my trust, my hope in who you are. And I'm starting that journey to you. Lord, show me the direction. Show me the way that I might walk more fully with you. Lord, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for what it gives us in terms of an understanding of what our journey might look like, should look like. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk that path committed completely, fully to you. We pray toward that end now in Jesus' name. Amen. As Pastor Jeff shared, place is important, and we're thankful for the physical ministries of Pathway represented in both Chippewa and Moon Township. But far more important than buildings are the people of Christ, joined together in commitment to our relationships with Him and with one another. That represents the true church. Wherever believers come and connect, that is where the church happens. And this is especially true for those of us who are connecting together here at Pathway Online. This is our church together today, and we thank God for this opportunity. 
If you'll be joining us again next week online, we'll be celebrating communion together so you can plan to have the elements ready where you are to participate with us. Have a fantastic week and we'll see you back here next Sunday.